This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Each year, accounting wonks gather in Washington, D.C. in December to attend the AICPA's National Conference on Current SEC and PCAOB Developments. The conference is a veritable who's who of the accounting and auditing profession, with speakers from the regulators, from the accounting firms, and from industry. Those in industry subject to the financial reporting standards promulgated by those same regulators and checked on by those same accounting firms. A few marquee speakers shine through each year and the panel focused on the SEC Division of Enforcement and accounting frauds always receives top billing. Way back in 2010, the then chief accountant for the Division of Enforcement had the following to say about accounting fraud. Quote, I want to start by saying that my assumption is that most SEC practitioners are honest, hardworking professionals who simply want to do the right thing. They understand that providing investors with transparent, comparable, high-quality financial information on a consistent basis is essential to public company financial reporting and the integrity of the financial markets. However, there is a dark side to financial reporting as Darth Vader might say, because there is a minority of bad apples willing to mislead investors in favor of keeping their jobs, getting their bonuses, and selling their stock at high prices. For these persons, providing high quality and credible disclosure documents to investors and the SEC is optional, and they break the law by knowingly or recklessly preparing and filing false financial statements with the SEC." End quote. As the dog days of summer continue, so too does our accounting summer school. And we have a chance to chat with the very chief enforcement accountant who spoke those words back in 2010. Howard Sheck, partner with Stone Turn Group LLP, joins us to discuss his unique career path and his experience with accounting fraud today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris, after a little a little mini break for us this That's summer. Right. But, you know, accounting summer school continues <laughs> and I got to hand it to you, Chris. We've had a really great lineup this summer. Of course, we kicked it off with an episode commemorating the 20th anniversary of SOX. That was with UCLA law professor Jim Park. We had an awesome chat with Tom Hood, who is the executive vice president for business growth and engagement at the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants. Among other things, he hit on some hot topics mm -hmm. in accounting, things like ESG and accounting for blockchain. And then we re-released a fan favorite episode focusing on accounting fraud. You got to talk about your favorite triangle, <laughs> you know, all the all the things that you love, you Chris. It. Of course, all those episodes are available at pli.edu slash insecurities or wherever you find podcasts. Today, though, I'm really excited to welcome to the show our good friend Howard Sheck. He's going to tell us a little bit about his time as the chief accountant in the SEC's Division of Enforcement and walk through some enduring and potentially new accounting fraud trends. So accounting summer school continues and it's going to be a good one. Before we dive in, let's give the listeners a little background on Howard. 
Howard, as you mentioned, Chris is a partner at Stone Turn. That's a global advisory firm that assists companies, their counsel, and government agencies on regulatory risk and compliance issues, investigations, and business disputes. Howard has more than 25 years' experience investigating public company financial reporting issues, including, as we mentioned, as chief accountant in the SEC's Division of Enforcement. As chief accountant, Howard led 100 accountants across the division in investigating accounting and audit-related enforcement matters that focused on things like revenue recognition, expense recognition, earnings management, and asset valuation. It's also worth noting that Howard has a JD and practiced as an attorney in the SEC's Division of Enforcement for more than 10 years, including as a branch chief. So he is a rare CPA, JD combo platter of awesome, but we're going to hear a little bit more about that in a few minutes. A few years ago, Howard spun out of the SEC and now in private practice. Howard leads accounting and FCPA-related investigations for audit and special committees, and he assists counsel in defending public companies, their officers, directors, and auditors in government investigations. If you hadn't picked up on this, in all respects, Howard is tailor-made for the Insecurities Podcast That's right. Accounting Summer School. We're fortunate mm-hmm. to have him on the show. Howard, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to be on your podcast and look forward to the discussion. I like the intro too of my quote there, Chris. Yeah, that's I have, right. I haven't heard that in a long time. But I was going to say we're going to get into if that still if that still applies today, right? That's 12 years ago now, but still, I think uh, you know we also do love a good pop culture reference. Kurt, you remember we talked with Rob Jackson about Star Wars, so anytime we can work Darth Vader into a discussion, <laughs> Howard, we'd love that's to right. do it. So let's get started where it began, Howard. How did you first get involved or interested in accounting and and talk to us about your early career choices? Sure. I mean, it started at Boston University in my undergrad. Believe it or not, my father was an accountant or an accounting major in in college where he went, which I did not know until after I graduated from Boston University. My father owned a meatpacking plant and I just had no idea that he was an accounting major. But I majored in accounting at BU. I didn't, I was not in the business school my freshman year, but I decided I didn't want to be pre-med after taking chemistry. Just did not like that (laughs) and transferred to the business school. And I was fortunate actually, because they put me in an honors accounting program for introductory accounting. And I remember going to my advisor saying, hey, I wasn't even in the business school freshman. Are you sure I should be in an honors accounting class? And they said, it's just the best teacher. The class is the same. So you should you should stick with it. I had the professor Sherburn, who was a professor emeritus, I think passed away many years ago now, but he was an amazing professor. And that's really what got me hooked on, on accounting. I liked, I just loved financial accounting. I liked the theory about it and I ended up deciding to major in it. And then coming out of school, your your first job was at a firm, right? You worked at an accounting firm. Yeah, I worked at Touche Ross. So dating myself, obviously, was before before the merger. But it, yeah, I was so I I did that for almost four years mm-hmm. right out of undergrad. So I was a traditional audit practice, audited a, a variety of public companies, private companies, investment companies. Worked up through a second year senior. And then, then decided to leave public accounting. I actually went in-house for, for almost a year oh, wow. where I, where I, for a public company on the New York Stock Exchange before I went to law school and, and then decided law was the direction I was going to go in at that point. 
Yeah, so tell us about that. I mean, obviously, you'd been practicing as an auditor for some number of years. You saw the light. You decided to put the abacus away. You know, go and do some some deep thinking, and also what like, what what caused you to make that pivot? It's a good question, Kurt. I mean, the it really, I mean, the 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 true answer is at the time back in you know after uh, I was an auditor for four years, I just couldn't see myself being an an audit partner, although I highly respected the the audit partners in the practice and. But I just looking at it, things retrospectively, just to do the audit to me, which just wasn't it just wasn't juicy enough for for what what I wanted. I don't know if that's probably not the best adjective, but I wanted something a little more thrilling than just doing the audit. Mm-hmm. And I was more interested in the fraud side and thought that going to law school and, and then being able to potentially work for the SEC, I obviously didn't know I would end up getting a job there, but that was among the things I had hoped that I might have the opportunity to do and work on fraud cases. Unfortunately, I was able to, to get that opportunity after interning at the SEC when I was in law school. Yeah, Kurt, I think we'll move away from the juicy discussion and just say that he, he set his advocates <laughs> to the yeah. side because, yeah. Howard, you've never kind of gotten away from accounting, right? Maybe not practicing or auditing specifically, but that we like to joke that that CPA-JD combo basically, you know, makes you an extra in a Marvel movie, right? You're a superhero in the legal and accounting <laughs> worlds when those two things come together. So the internship at the SEC, it sounds like that was always kind of a focus for you as a place to go and really hone your skills as, a, as an attorney with, with an accounting background on a lot of these fraud cases. Absolutely. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, when I went to law school at American University, Washington College Law in D.C., where I, where I practice now, and they have a lot of opportunities to work with government agencies. So I had applied, and I think it was my third year of law school, to be a student in the Student Observer Program. And, and I, I, I was fortunate enough to get that. And I kept bugging my supervisor at the time. Yeah, I really want to work here. I really want to work here. And eventually I was able to get a job out of law school directly with the, with the enforcement division. So I was fortunate. Hmm. So you were in the division of enforcement as, as an attorney for about 10 years. I mean, tell us, tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. I mean, it was, I guess I, you know, going to Chris's theme about staying with accounting, I mean, I didn't know necessarily when I joined went to law school and joined the SEC as an attorney that I would ever go back strictly to forensic accounting or, or, or ever go back to a public big four firm and be on an audit engagement team again. So we may be able to get into that, but that, it was interesting what happened later. But at the, at the time when I joined the SEC as an attorney, I basically worked my way up from, yeah, I think I was a staff attorney. You know, you come in as a staff attorney when, when you first join, then I became senior counsel and then I became a branch chief. But I really learned how to do things from a you know from the legal perspective, obviously, how to put together an investigation plan after you have some theory uh, of the case, how to interview the witnesses, how to go through the documents and basically put a case together from um, a legal perspective. I, I gravitated toward accounting cases. I tried to get on and work as many accounting cases as I could. And as you know, most of the cases settle that, you know, accounting cases and others. So we tried to put a record together that was so compelling that the that the respondents or defendants would would understand that litigating didn't make sense, and that 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 was that was I guess our goal to do 
an, a, a fair and objective investigation. I think that's important yeah. is that they need to be fair and objective as well. I agree. I agree. Well, you know, some people take that experience and they will go out and work at a big law firm. You, you came out and went to Deloitte, right? So, I mean, tell us a little bit about that experience. Maybe that's that next pivot that you were talking about. Well, yeah, I think at some point I, I decided when I was a branch chief that I wanted to go to private practice. I can't remember how many kids I had at the time, but I, you know, making a little more money was 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 an important objective. Uh, Hopefully, for, Howard, do you remember yeah. now how many kids you have? I do. I do. <laughs> okay, I good. Think, Just uh, wanted to yeah. check in as the accountant. <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure they were accounted for. Yeah. Sorry and, to interrupt. Uh, and, but uh, I, you know, I decided I, I, I did the normal route. I, I interviewed at a whole bunch of law firms, got some offers at law firms. And then during that process, discovered the whole forensic world that that was out there and uh, decided to take that route instead of going to a law firm. And I think, Howard, that leads into a lot of where you're kind of back and forth with this dance you've done with the commission over your career. You know, interested, you know, we shared time together at Deloitte, although you were a little bit higher on the food chain than, than me coming right out of undergrad at that time. But how was your experience at a big four at the time accounting firm? And how did you see that work inform some of the things you were doing as, as the chief accountant, which you, which you turned over to in, in 2010? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Chris. I mean, First of all, I think I alluded to this earlier, it was very interesting to return to the big four. It was Deloitte at the time. And all of a sudden, after practicing law for a long time and not being at a big four, all of a sudden I'm a fraud partner on an audit engagement team. And I'm out at a client doing fraud interviews and doing SAS 99 brainstorming mm -hmm. sessions. So you, So a lot of it was, at least from the audit perspective, was very interesting to go back and work with auto clients again to make sure they were doing a, an appropriate fraud risk assessment or, you know, as the auditors evaluating what, what fraud risk assessment had been done and doing, doing the, the audit firm's own. And then I also got involved with the potential legal acts, 10A potential. So if an audit client, there was an allegation and whistleblower or otherwise helping the audit engagement teams and OGC on that. So it was very interesting just to see it from the other side of the coin compared to the regulators and, and understanding, and this is partly where I got the perspective that I did from what you quoted, is that my, my general sense from working at Deloitte was that the auditors were clearly trying to do the right thing in connection with those 10A investigations. Uh, they were, you know, we I was involved in many conversations on clients about you know, whether the accounting m might be wrong or not, whether the disclosures, and it was a very thoughtful, thoroughly documented process. So it gave me a lot of faith that after have seen, having seen sort of certain bad things when I was at the SEC, and not necessarily with the big four or, you know, but just across the board, that I was happy that, that at least at my firm, I thought, I thought things were done in the appropriate and in, 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 in correct manner. And, and that's, that's why I think that generally accountants are trying to do the right thing, both at the companies and at the audit firms. But as you said, there is a minority of, of, of times when there's not. And that's, that's where I help defend those folks now, primarily, because I think the government is, doesn't always do necessarily, well, you just have to hold the government to proving their case. You know, 
you know, as you, you both see that on your practices, whistleblower allegations are one thing, but being able to go to trial and prove something is, is another. And when you're talking about someone's career and livelihood, I think it's important that the government actually be able to prove their case. And, and I think it's important for us on our side of the table to, to, to make sure that occurs. Kurt, I'm going to give you room to disagree with our guest on that. <laughs> no, I'm going to. Oh, no, full agreement? I mean, I'm going to agree good. completely, what, especially, <laughs> you know, I think it's especially, I don't want to say especially true. Maybe you just, you, you feel that obligation more in cases where there are individuals whose livelihood may be on the on the line. You know, someone who practices before the commission and could be, you know, barred from doing so. It just, you know, the stakes are a little bit different. So I agree with you, Howard. you got to make sure that they are satisfying their burden, burden of proof or that they have a compelling case if they're going to bring those kinds of charges. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's not just for the individual. I agree with you that the, the stakes are higher for individuals. And we, I, I personally like working with CFOs and controllers and individuals on a lot of the defense matters I do because there is that personal relationship you have with the, directly with the person that's just not the entity. But, I, you know, I think it, that the same principle applies to yeah. making sure that the SEC isn't um, going after companies and, and making cases that, that aren't appropriate either. Yeah, agree. And Howard, you know, you spent three years at the helm, right, as the, the, the chief yep. accountant for the Division of yes. Enforcement. How has that informed or, or helped kind of the, the, the work you do now at Stone Turn? Is that, is, are there areas that you know to focus on or, or, or things that you can remember from the, from the time that you were the chief accountant that are helping with, with those defenses? Or is it really just trying to do, do the best work you can for the clients that, that come to you? Well, I think it's probably both, if I understood your question, Chris. I mean, obviously, being in the position of the chief accountant and seeing the entire inventory of everything that the, that the, that the SEC enforcement's investigating and having oversight and involvement in a lot of those cases just give you such a broader perspective than just the individual cases you were, I was working on when I was a branch chief and an attorney. You got more involvement with the Office of Chief Accountant and Corp Finn and, and how the consultations work with those divisions and including interacting with the PCAOB. So you sort of understand how the sausage is made, if you will, even at a higher level than you did before and just understanding that a lot of it really comes down to obviously the quality of evidence with respect to and litigation risk on when there when there are issues some things are much more clear-cut than others and a lot of it's just using judgment and prosecutorial discretion that the sec has a lot of because there's there's certain situations even then where the question would be is it just is it really worth as we alluded to before, go, ruining someone's career or going after someone for the, on these facts and circumstances when someone was acting potentially, well, not potentially, but acting in good faith. So I just think exercising, learning how to exercise that prosecutorial discretion, I think was important. I didn't always have the final say, obviously, because mm -hmm. there were attorneys involved and, and other folks, but at least I could provide my opinion on that. And I think that that has shaped how I view I think what's fair now on the other side. Yeah. Well, we want to actually, you know, zoom in and look at some of those issues that the uh, that the enforcement staff investigates or some of the cases that they bring and try to tease out some themes. You know, sure. as I mentioned up top, we recently re-released our episode on accounting fraud. 
you know, some of the themes in that episode, Howard, really align with the, the quote that Chris used from your speech right up top. You know, for example, in your speech, you identified six common themes of accounting shenanigans. Shenanigans, Howard, was your word, and I think that's a technical accounting term. But Chris, I, I'm not yes, sure. Is there yes. an acronym or something we can throw out there? It's, it, it's almost a famous, it's also a famous bar that we go to after we, we prosecute <laughs> accounting fraud. So it's good good to know. Meet, meet you at shenanigans. Anyway, right. let's, yeah, let's run through. That would be a good name for a bar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's run through the six yeah. Six themes really quickly here. So one is accounting frauds typically start small. Uh, two is accounting frauds are not limited to little known small cap companies that are trading in the pink sheets. Three is the main perpetrators in accounting fraud cases very often are members of the issuers or the company's senior management team. Four, non-compliance with GAAP and inadequate disclosures are a means to an end. That is, there's always some motive for the fraud, and it could be something like trying to mask the company's true financial condition. Five, accounting fraud involves considerations of materiality. And at least in cases of accounting fraud, there are often, quote, less than robust qualitative materiality assessments end quote at the company. <laughs> and at number six, you know, scienter or intent is, is a key consideration in all accounting fraud cases, or it should be. All right. So those were your six that you identified in, in 2010, Howard. It's been a little while since you drafted that list. I wonder how you feel about them today. Do, do the six hold up? Are these the kinds of things you're still seeing in your practice now? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's generally, you know, I don't, I don't think what I was saying back then was rocket science or anything that those in the profession didn't already know or understand. And it, it, I think it rings true today. I think, I think the, the thing that stands out to me is probably the more important one is the qualitative materiality assessment, because I think with the SEC going after more qualitative issues with respect to earnings management, non-GAAP measures, and things that might not even be accounting, ultimately GAAP accounting violations, but but just disclosure, MDA disclosure violations, it's becoming more and more apparent that companies need to consider not just quantitative materiality, but qualitative. And that's really in my practice what I'm seeing many earnings management cases that were helping to defend. And usually there, there are some issues related to qualitative materiality that, that need to be assessed. Chris, would love y- your reaction to that. We do, after all, have two accountants on the, on the line today. Are, <laughs> we never have enough accountants this? on the line, but yes, we do well, we have two today. That two accountants and two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. I guess, yeah. But only three people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris, sure there's anyway, a creative accounting <laughs> joke in there somewhere. But <laughs> to your question, Kurt, about the themes, I mean, Howard's absolutely right. This is not anything new under the sun, but these being able to consider the ways in which accounting fraud is similar across industry, across scheme, across mechanic, 
is a very important consideration for how these should be viewed going forward. I think the, the most important part and what I try to talk to all of our clients about when they're dealing with allegations is that the materiality discussion, you know, goes back to Howard, the first theme that you had is that accounting frauds typically start small. It's, oh, we had a bad quarter, we had a bad month, we had a bad product launch. Let's just do this on a temporary basis, release some reserve arbitrarily or, or something else to make things smooth over for now and it'll be fine. It is it is definitely a zero-sum game in a lot of cases where you can't just create these, these issues and, and not have some implication in the following quarter or in the following year. I think, too, the important theme here that probably underruns all six of these is it is not black and white in any of these issues, right? That it seems when we talk about cooking the books and, you know, fabricating revenues or, or some of the other schemes that come out there, it always seems conclusatory in the SEC order or in some of the headlines you might read about it. But as we've talked about up front, there's a lot of well-meaning, good faith activity going on here that accounting is not just black and white. There's a lot of guidance under GAAP and under other financial reporting standards where there's a spectrum on which any issuer can put their estimate or, or you know, label a contingency, right? All of those things are subject to judgment. And the judgment's really where we start to get into these questions of what was your intent? Did you intend to represent that potential liability accurately? Or did you intend to lessen the concern with that liability so that investors didn't pay attention to it or it did not impact the the stock price that you had and then you're, you're getting paid a bonus out of there? And those are the themes that continue to come up in these cases are the why and how that relates to the what. And it's not just debits on the left, credits on the right. It is it is tough to decide. It's tough even for some of these individuals to look back and say, you know what, I don't really remember if in you know the third quarter of 2016, if we were talking about these issues in that way, or if we were just trying to make sure we could get the queue out on time, right? Those kind of things come up as well. So I think, Howard, you're talking about qualitative materiality and brief aside, quantitative materiality, right? Relating to the actual dollar values involved with whatever the issue might be. Qualitative reality being some of that contextual information that investors might want to know about, even if it's only a five or a ten dollar issue, for example, the reputational damage or potentially the the concerns about regulations or, or other things may be significant to a business beyond just what the dollar value of that that issue might be. So all of those considerations come together, and I think Howard, I, I'll agree with you; they definitely do stand the test of time here, twelve years on. Yeah, and I I would add that. You know, it's the documentation and the support that that company and management has with respect to the transactions that are at issue um, that are so crucial, and whether the whether the company is doing a fraud risk assessment on the ways that things could go south, because we're we're seeing so many instances where if the company just had a memo that said this is why we made this closing entry and this is the support for it, yep. so so the SEC wouldn't have to speculate. Well, are you doing that? <laughs> to meet earnings or, or meet EPS targets versus there was a, a accounting basis and rationale and support for it. You know, what documentation was there is crucial. I don't, and the other observation I have is that the SEC with their cases to me is getting closer and closer to the point where, where is the line between legal earnings management and illegal earnings management and what needs to be disclosed because as, all, as you guys know, all companies, in my experience, or I'd say virtually all companies, are doing things to try to meet expectations. I mean, that's just what business does. They're, you know, they have shareholders, they have constituencies, that, and, they're, and they're trying to meet their goals and objectives. 
And many companies are offering discounts at the end of a quarter, and they're, they're doing it in compliance with GAAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with providing a discount. The que- the, it's, but the question is, do you need to disclose anything about the practice? And the, and the SEC is bringing cases now where even if GAAP is complied with, they're alleging that there should be additional disclosure beyond sort of the traditional channel stuffing cases. And it's just where the line is getting you know, is, the, is the company, is the SEC going to allege that a company violated MD&A because they didn't disclose that they were discounting at the end of the quarter? I mean, to me, that would not be necessarily a, a, a violation, but who, who knows where the SEC is going with mm-hmm. some of these allegations? Yeah, and Howard, on that point, one of the constant conversations that I have, usually with Kurt, but also with others in the industry, is <laughs> The yeah. role of auditors, right, in the market, yes. and that we've got these guys and gals out there meant to check on these issues. And, Kurt, you know, we've had a bunch of episodes focused specifically on auditors, episode 17, 43, and as recently as episode 69. Howard, you spoke a little bit about your time working with a large accounting firm as a fraud specialist. And that's yes. something that every, you know, audit plan it has incorporated since SAS 99 came out and as well as just a great practice to do that going forward. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the role of auditors and how the audit views some of these issues and, and what kind of help fraud specialists can help support audit teams with. Sure. I mean, I, I, obviously, at the highest level, public companies have to get audited financial statements under the federal securities laws and the auditors conduct the audit, the audit work is to provide reasonable assurance, which is an important concept that the financial statements are not materially misstated. They're not providing absolute assurance. And sometimes I, I see the regulators potentially thinking that standard is closer to absolute assurance versus mm-hmm. reasonable assurance in some of the cases that I've worked on. But generally, you know, the audit engagement team, you know, consists of the partner, the EQR, the quality control partner and various staff that are conducting the audit, regardless of you know how big it is, obviously has more staff, but, and their role is to document the work papers to support the opinion. The fraud specialist comes in, as I mentioned before, with respect to helping the auditor do fraud brainstorming. So uh, oftentimes I would have led a brainstorming discussion with the engagement team, like how could the, if the company was gonna cook the books, how would it do it? And then you try to have as mo- a robust of a discussion as you can and then understand what controls the company may have in place to prevent that. And if, if they were going to circumvent controls, how, how would that occur? Just those kinds of discussions. And then separately, if there is an actual issue, try to for 10A, then try to follow up on that. But that was my role. And I tried to educate, at least when I was there, because I had the, the unique experience of being on the SEC enforcement side on, on what can happen to an audit partner or audit engagement team member if the SEC starts snooping around on things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I find that actually sort of on, on my side of things, Chris, yeah. I, I'm, I'm having a lot more of these conversations, I think, than I was <clears throat> 10 years ago. And they, they get kind of at the role of auditors thinking about things like qualitative materiality, focusing on you know what to disclose, and, and when, I think that's increasingly difficult when it's Im- impossible to actually do the, you know, a, a conclusive quantitative analysis, right? There's a little bit of art in there, and I think it's only going to get more difficult as things like ESG disclosure rules kind of take effect and companies mm-hmm. are grappling with that. But, you know, if we sort of just zoom out, 
what we're really talking about is, you know, just like accounting fraud, right? This has been a focus of the SEC enforcement staff for a long, long time. Every year, issuer reporting and disclosure cases are among like the top three or four buckets of enforcement actions. So in some respects, nothing changes. But Howard, I wonder if if you see sort of the, the focus shifting, right? Like I, I mentioned ESG as a potential down the road kind of thing, but do you do you see new types of cases coming out or are, are the actions sort of crystallizing in new areas? I, I think as at a high level, not really, as far as new. I mean, it's, it's, it's really earnings management, revenue recognition, expense recognition cases, you know, like ASC 450, whether, whether a company recorded the right contingent liability. So I'm not seeing, you know, everyone's always looking for the next thing. Like I, as, as right. Chris and I know, <laughs> Kurt, you'll remember the stock options. I mean, I, that's a yeah. long time mm-hmm. ago now, but that was the big issue. And, and, and when I was at the SEC, the China-based issuers was an issue. And I worked on a number of cases back then because that was the risk at the time. So it's really kind of looking at what what is the risk in the marketplace and how, how might that manifest itself into accounting fraud. But I think at a high level, it's it's a lot of the same, you know, now with the, uh, there's new avenues, like you said, of potential disclosure violations with, with ESG and others, and whether or not cybercrime or, or other, you know, technology ways to sort of have a company cook the books is, 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 I guess, a potential, but mostly the same, I guess, I think. All right, Howard, we want to jump into a couple of more recent topics on on that same trend line. One is the SEC's EPS initiative. This is is one that might be tougher for those non-quants out there looking at you, Kurt, to be able to follow (laughs) as it it is a little bit math heavy. But the, the phrase quadrophobia comes into play as well, a fear of the number four. Howard, talk to us a bit about the SEC's EPS initiative and maybe some of the cases that have come out of that. I mean, sure. I, I guess big picture, the the SEC has do, does data analytics internally to try to identify various accounting frauds. They they actually started that um, fraud risk. I forget what they call it now, but it's been so long. But the uh, we started doing that when I was the chief accountant, actually, and working mm-hmm. with the Office of Economic Analysis at at the time on trying to do those assessments. But they 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 identify things like the quadrophobia, like the it's round, basically rounding, and whether whether companies are rounding their EPS. So if the, if their EPS comes calculated and, and it rounds to a like a 0.4 decimal place, if you round it up 0.1, it's to go 0.5, you're going to have an extra penny on earnings per share. And in some ways, you think a penny doesn't really make that much difference, <laughs> but and that's an example of qualitative materiality. That if you know if the Wall Street analysts are expecting. Five cents a share, and it's gonna, you know, not it's gonna be four point nine cents uh, or point nine nine, you know, whatever. To, to, and they're gonna miss, then engaging in a transaction to to get that extra penny is something that is a risk, and that's what that that initiative's trying to to do at the SEC. And I think too, Howard, we talked a little bit about where do we draw the line between legal earnings management and illegal earnings management. Yeah. The the focus, and, and I believe there've only been you know half dozen, maybe four cases that have come out of the EPS initiative specifically, and that's focused on the analytics side, right? Accounting fraud has happened across the spectrum in the years since the initiative got started. This is really a focus on 
making choices around the appropriate calculation of EPS and representing that the right way. So seeing those numbers come into play here, it's a little bit more of a clear case to say we understand you business are purposefully coloring outside the lines here to make this number four, you know, 0.154 turn into 1.155 so that you can round that up to 16 cents instead of keeping that at 15 cents and then thereby have a better number. And that's a little bit more clear cut than some of the strategic decisions we talk about when it comes to that illegal earnings management. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's, there's, there's two different types of cases. One is the rounding, and I think one relates to actually doing a practice like if a company is actually shipping earlier than expected but gets client consent for that early shipment, whether that practice is meets gap requirements and customer acceptance under accounting rules and whether any disclosures required versus sort of a rounding issue where is there support for the entry that was made that enables the company to to meet the expectation or, or, and you know I, 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 i'm hesitant as, as you understand to mention specific names of companies because i've worked on a number of rounding investigations and other types of earnings management investigations, but it's it comes back to what I said earlier. It's what is the documentation and the support? What was the accounting analysis? It, it's it's much better for companies to contemporaneously, if they're engaging in some sort of practice, to, to write a memo and document what they're doing and why they think it meets gap and, and why they think a disclosure is required or not. And even if they end up being wrong, in, in, in retrospect, with respect to how the SEC views it, at least they have the contemporaneous documentation to show that they were acting in good faith and how they made their conclusion. And it's it's usually when those types of documents don't exist that make it harder on our on our clients. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's that's sort of how I how, how I look go about it. But. Yeah, you actually you wrote a little bit about this yeah. in an article for for Bloomberg, where you were yes. providing some advice to companies about ways that they could update their financial reporting fraud risk assessments to to identify potential issues with with these kinds of earnings management practices. And you talked about looking out for things like touting and patterns and and pressure internally. I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of the advice that you would offer to companies that are trying to avoid these kinds of problems with the SEC? Well, it's exactly doing the what I what you just mentioned, Kurt. It's like if if first of all, the each company should evaluate what kind of quarter end practices they're actually engaging in. So the accounting department, for example, should understand what the sales folks are doing. So if there are any, you know, going back to side, like are there side agreements? I mean, that, that that's just a big picture. You know, how do, how do the accounting folks so there's no side agreements, if there are practices such as early shipments or shipping product to a customer that may have sufficient inventory already, channel stuffy type questions, just understanding whether there's a risk at all and what the rationale is for for the, the transaction, I think is probably the most important thing. And then historically understanding, is, is there a pattern or has there been one for meeting or exceeding or just exceeding or, analyst expectations because if you if you put everything together it's a type of environment where there is pressure where they were meeting just meeting expectations they are touting and there there are like documentation holes then certainly those are going to be the 
the red flags that the SEC is going to identify if they come in. If an you know internal investigation is done, that's what the forensic accountants and law firm is going to find when they come in. So I think it's better for the companies just to understand that, either to know that they don't have that risk, or if they do, they can figure out how to potentially remediate or enhance what they're doing going forward. But that's generally what we're seeing and advising our clients. Yeah. I mean, look, I think this is good advice, obviously, in this particular context, but more broadly, it's the right advice. And I, I talk about this yeah. with clients all the time. Let's look around and figure out what we have been doing or what we are doing. Let's create a defensible process. Let's document it so that if anyone comes, maybe it's an investigation that's ongoing right now. Maybe it's something we don't even know about that's going to come in three years. But we can always say, this is the process. This is why we made the decisions we made. Maybe it doesn't mean you walk away, but it, it probably changes it's certainly the temperature of the staff, but, but potentially the charges at the end of that kind of case. So, I mean, Howard, the advice is perfect. And I just would say this isn't just about earnings management or any kind of accounting scheme. It, this, is, this should be the rule, the way you're thinking about it more broadly. Exactly. And as you both know, companies sometimes are reluctant to want to spend money on, say, proactive yeah. measures or doing a risk assessment or enhancing controls, but it's such well-spent money that it's hard to convince folks sometimes to do that, but they see when they get involved in an SEC investigation how beneficial that would have been if they had potentially done it in advance. I agree. Yeah, we never want to say, I told you so, Howard, but sometimes it's pretty pretty easy to recognize that (laughs) when an issue comes down the road. One of the things too, Howard, I want to pick your brain on, you know, you wrote a little bit about this, this inventory, you know, pull forward a revenue recognition and, and Kurt, this is something that we talked about in our, our accounting fraud episode, right? Accelerating or increasing revenues versus, you know, limiting or, or pushing off expenses. And I think, and Howard, this is my own, my own take and I want your response to it is that companies look to legitimate sales in future quarters as this kind of go between, right? They're not making up customers. They're not creating, you know, 10,000 units sold in, in an environment where they're selling a thousand a quarter, but they're looking ahead and saying, Hey, you know, we are going to be a little bit short this quarter. What if we just take January 15th shipment and move it to December 30th? And they see that as kind of a, a middle ground between, you know, baseless accounting fraud, let's make up another thousand unit shipment, and also kind of having to deal with the bad news of coming up short. Is that a, kind of a fair, do you see that with some of the issues that, that we've we've talked about and that you've wrote about, that that being kind of a middle ground that turns into that slippery slope for, for future quarters? Absolutely. I mean, it's the fa- general fact pattern that that's, uh, surrounds some of these early shipment cases. I mean, it really comes down to two different issues which I think I may have alluded to before, but one is, is the accounting right? And two, and second, even if it's right, is there a disclosure obligation? And it, it gets it gets very tricky to determine whether there's a disclosure ob- obligation because it has to be material and, the, and investors would have to think the practice was something that they needed to know about or should know about. And, you know, I think in some in some respects, I think the SEC takes a very strict position that sale was meant to be destined for a certain quarter. And if it's not booked in that quarter, then there's some kind of fraud going on, which I, I think is it's a lot more nuanced than that. And you mm-hmm. know, I think there's a lot more 
considerations to be done, and, uh, and it just depends on the facts and circumstances. Excellent. Good. Good to know I'm right, right, Kurt? That, that's yeah, Howard confirming yes. my my theory. Yeah. Good. Just want to note that for for our listeners. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised you wanted to note that. You know, we got to yeah. points on the board, buddy. I, I anyway. always think you're right, Chris. Yeah. Hey, look at that. 72 oh episodes in. Now now we know I'm always right. That's We're, that's, that's going to hit the cutting room floor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> Well, all right, Howard, before before we let you go, we've covered a lot of ground, but just wondering if there are any other any other trends or themes that you're sort of following at the moment that you would highlight for listeners. Yes, Kurt, there's one other issue that just to be on everyone's radar screen, and it relates to China-based companies or companies that have operations in China. The, I, I don't know if folks know that two years ago, the, the there was the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act of 2020 which I think is the acronym is HFCAA, which is a mouthful uh, on its own. But HIFSCA, the old HIFSCA, yeah, right? It, it, it wouldn't uh, be an accounting episode without one super long acronym. Yeah, but it's, I mean, in a nutshell, there's some pretty draconian potential consequences if inspection is not enabled for, for these company at some point because trading could be stop for these companies if, if they can't get access to work papers for three years or three annual periods. And, and at some point, you know, it, it's just unclear how this is going to get resolved for, for certain companies. And I think it's something to watch. And I think that but, comes, yeah. the impact of that, Howard, I believe is in 2025, right? That'll be the first year at which these, these businesses are, are, are subject to potentially being delisted or do I have my dates wrong there? I, not, I think you're right, but I'm not positive. It's, uh, you just told it's me I'm always right, Howard, so come on. That, that, that's true. But the, the, <laughs> uh, the, the PCAOB commissioner, I think Erica has, has spoken about this issue. I think, uh, I think Gary Gensler has, I think, spoken about this issue. It's, just, it's, it's, it's something that I had addressed back when I was the chief accountant and a co-head of the, the China, the cross-border working group, which looked at these China issues. And, and the, uh, you know, there was always a... You know whether to delist or or uh, suspend trading in, in companies that could not that 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 is a, a very thick remedy that that could have a lot of impact and therefore now that it's written into the law that that could take place I think companies are going to have to in audit firms are going to have to figure this out as well as regulators. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and and you hinted at Howard. There have been a lot of conversations this summer from regulators in in the. 20th anniversary of Sarbanes-Oxley. Yes. And there's no better guest to have on, Howard, than you, someone who served in, in the hot seat as the chief accountant at the Division of Enforcement. So we thank you for joining us today, and I know our listeners appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Kurt. I appreciate the opportunity to join you guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Howard Sheck of Stone Turn. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.